We have in the studio this morning a special guest. Um, Mr Jeff Barker is uh, an amateur historian, I think would be a fair description, from Sydney. He's in Glen Innes for the show, but he's kindly agreed to come in and have a little chat this morning. And we have a slight sporting connection. But Jeff is in particular interested in the... 18th century Protestant ascendancy, we could say, the Anglo-Irish in Ireland. Uh, and he has um, one of the avenues through which he's exploring uh, the, this era in history is a particular house. Good morning, Jeff. Good morning, Pam. Thank you for um, having me. It's lovely being here with you. And uh, can you tell us, what's the name of this house that you're so interested in? Yes, it's uh, one of the... Um Great stately homes of Ireland, uh, Castle Town House in County Kildare, uh, just roughly, well, not too far from Dublin itself, really. Yeah. Fascinating. And um, what is it about this house that makes it interesting from the perspective of Irish history? Well, it's always been something of a mystery as to who should be attributed uh, as being its uh, designer or architect. And... Uh, among the estate papers of the Conley family, um, there's a, a complete absence of any material which would illuminate that. Uh, usually in the estate papers of uh, most families, you, know, you get some sort of an idea as to who might have designed their house or how much the workmen were paid or how many people were involved in it and so on and so forth. But here, it's a blank. So... We're relying on other um, uh, evidence, and there is a fair bit, you know, correspondence between various people and other documents and so forth, and, and the house itself, the physicality of the house itself reveals perhaps some uh, aspects of its design and so on. Very interesting. And, of course, the early, the first half, shall we say, of the 18th century in Ireland, mm. there is a lot of stately homes uh, yes, being indeed. built and a lot of... Um, important architects at work in that period, aren't there? That's exactly right. And um, the one built by Speaker William Connolly, Castletown House, is generally and correctly uh, seen as the first of those. Uh, work commence on, commences on it in 1722, and it's basically com well, almost fully completed by about 1728. Um, but it's many, or quite a few years ahead of the uh, explosion in the building of stately homes both in uh, Britain and in Ireland at that time. So it's a good five years ahead of the wave, so to speak, which in itself makes it quite interesting. Yeah. Um, and the family who commissioned the house, can you tell us a little bit about them? Yes, indeed. Um, and indeed, one of the uh, features of what I'd like to talk about is what we can... Um, add to our understanding of Speaker William Conley, the original owner, um, when we actually do examine the house and its, um, and its provenance. But uh, Speaker William Conley, uh, sadly, uh, has something of a, a character to your uh, biography. Um, he comes from a family which is not particularly well documented or known, so therefore he's seen as having a humble or obscure origin. Uh, and then somehow he becomes quite wealthy, uh, notorious, notoriously by trafficking in forfeited estates during the uh, aftermath of uh, the defeat of James II. Uh, he then enters Parliament, ultimately becomes Speaker, 
it becomes a Lord Justice, and uh, the time of his death is reputed to have been the wealthiest man in Ireland. So that's a very potted version of, of, of his life, and most of which I dispute. <laughs> <laughs> How fabulous. There's nothing like a good dispute in history. Um, so we got a lovely Jacobite connection there, and yes. we very um, frequently talk on this program about the Jacobite Risings and all the wonderful oh, yes, music yeah. that they spawn, and, of course, mm. we usually think of the Scottish end, mm. uh, but the Irish connection with the Jacobite Risings is absolutely huge, and that same mm. confiscation of estates and yes. all of that was going on, and, and our chap Connolly seems to have, have yes. uh, benefited from that quite Profusely, doesn't he? He certainly did, yeah. and um, yes, and, it, and in fact, it also led to uh, uh, another scandal again with the forfeited estates, quite separately to the you know, more commonly known one, where Catholic Irish were sort of progressively being dispossessed of their land um, after various rebellions and so on. Because in the one following the Williamite victory. Um, there was a sea change in uh, politics uh, which was behind the Glorious Revolution where um, the Crown was no longer expected to operate just on its own bat. Uh, the Divine Right of Kings was out and the monarchy was meant to operate in conjunction with Parliament. But uh, because William III, though, needed some money pretty desperately, he decided to sell some of the forfeited estates <clears throat> without consulting Parliament, which they took umbrage to. And um, he um, claimed, quite correctly, that these weren't just any forfeited estates, these happened to be the estates owned by the former king. <laughs> and so now he was the king. And um, so that, that private estate of James II, which he acquired by right of conquest, I suppose, he sold off. And you'll never guess who his early attorney was for those sales. Do tell. William Connolly. <laughs> there we have it. <laughs> and this led to, a, any event, the sale led to a big dispute with the British Parliament because they said, well, you know, you, you promised us you weren't going to sell any of these estates without consulting us, and now you've gone and you sold your own ones. So they, uh, they, they completely cancelled all the sales and had a commission of inquiry and so forth, and... Uh, and the, uh, all of the properties then were sold again about well, three or four years later. So it led to a big political scandal. So all of this went on, and um, against that background, we've got this mad, this wonderful house being built. Well, slightly, uh, well, yes, uh, not at exactly that period, about 20 years later, roughly, then the house is being built. Um, but I, th I think the main thing that's drawn from the forfeited estates is that it's often cited as... A, the reason behind William Connolly's wealth that somehow he's involved in, you know, tra well, they, used, they used the term trafficking in these forfeited estates and, and somehow um, made a lot of money from that. Well, he certainly did profit from it, but it puts the horse before the cart. And the only reason, of course, he could have bought any of these forfeited estates was that he was cashed up. <laughs> he actually had a lot of money beforehand, you know, before he could buy the property. So, you know, yes, he did he, he did benefit from it, but it wasn't the cause of his wealth. It just amplified his wealth somewhat. You know. mm. And, uh, but in regard to the building the house in that sense, it is often noted that he didn't start building the house till he was 60 years old, which is also um, something that other historians pick on and 
He didn't have any children. Uh, he did have a, a, a nephew and so on. He had, he had nephews and nieces, of course, but but he um, he didn't have children. So a lot of historians scratch their head and think, well, I wonder why he built such a uh, large and uh, home, you know, when he had no immediate uh, family to leave it to. I think that's. Uh Quite the thing, quite the done thing, though, in the 18th century, wasn't it, to, mm. to build a large residence with which to show off mm. your wealth, particularly in in the case of our man who seems to have uh, mm. had quite a lot of wealth, perhaps acquired in some interesting mm. ways, or, and, as you say, <laughs> increased right. in some interesting <laughs> ways. Right. Um, so once the house is built, yes. um, mm. we get some interesting things going on in the house as well, don't we, or towards the end of the building stage and then later on um so there's some stories attached to the family mm-hmm. um have you got a couple of little tasters for us oh well the house itself goes through a lot of um a lot of what's the term they use vicissitudes it's um it's lucky still to be standing to be honest uh after speaker william's death he he died in 1729 and even though the, the actual physical house itself is, has achieved practical completion, the actual uh, surrounding landscaping and, and, and things of this nature have uh, not been completed. Um, and his wife lives in it uh, for many years but doesn't seem to have done much uh, you know, to, to finish off the house. On, on her death, um, Conley's nephew... Um, uh, occupies the house, but he's only there for two years before he dies, and then the house is sort of left vacant for a number of years before, in turn, his son takes it over, and it's at that time, Pamela, that the house becomes perhaps a bit more famous and prominent because um, Speaker William's great nephew was a, a gentleman called Thomas Conley, and his wife was Lady Louisa Lennox, the daughter of the Second Duke of Richmond, and they decide to make the uh, house their seat in Ireland um, they could easily have you know, uh, had a seat in England if they so wished uh, but they decided to do that and they completely refurbished the house so it gets a complete makeover, the exterior has changed slightly but the interior is uh, um, completely fitted out particularly in an Italianate style so after their marriage they went on a, a, a trip to uh, Italy uh, and of course they're quite um, you know, prominent people. This is not to be confused like with the grand tour that other people, you know, people might have heard, Ulysses might have heard about the grand tour and so on, which was sort of more um, uh, a case of uh, young lads who were just finishing uh, university and so forth to spend a year or two in Europe with their tutors. Um, but here you have um, a very wealthy man and the daughter and his wife, the daughter of a, a leading aristocrat, um, you know, visiting Italy for about a year or two, and their main purpose was to acquire or arrange the acquisition of uh, everything they needed to decorate the house, you know, such as statuary, paintings, I think they got a giant chandelier from Venice, things of this nature, you know, so it was a sort of a, a working holiday, so to speak, or a working honeymoon, <laughs> you put it like that. How marvellous. Uh, and uh, yeah. it must have been great fun getting all of that stuff back to Ireland. Well, exactly <laughs> right, yes. And uh, there is a few few records about that, you know, the uh, the vagaries of that. Um, so they, uh, you know, so they basically uh, fitted out the house nicely, lived in it. 
upon Thomas Connolly's death, there was talk of um, uh, selling the house. It was offered to the uh, military establishment actually as a barracks. Uh, that was examined, but um, the authorities rejected that idea as that they didn't think it was appropriate. That would have been just after the 1798 rebellion. Mm -hmm. uh, so it uh, avoided that fate. Uh, you know, it then passed down um, to the next uh, in line. Uh, at that time, the, the Conley, uh, uh, what do you call it, the inheritance passed through the female line with um, uh, the uh, the husbands of, 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 the, of these ladies having to change their name to inherit under the will. Uh -huh. So the first instance of that was the uh, uh, Edward Packenham uh, was the uh, designated heir, heir on the basis that he changed his name to Conley, <laughs> uh, uh, which he did, of course. And that happened again subsequently uh, a couple of generations later. So um, uh, the house was then occupied for many, many years. I think its next uh, brush with fate was... Um, just during the uh, early days of the Republic, I think, in mm -hmm. 1922, when, as you listeners might recall, there was quite a bit of um, uh, harsh uh, actions taken uh, in regard to, you know, British colonial settlers who might still have been in Ireland at that time. Indeed. And in various cases, their houses were burnt down and so forth. Arson was quite a common thing. Uh, particularly in regard to the stately homes, you know, the large homes. Mm. And um, it was, uh, you know, the IRA did appear there and um, with, uh, complete with their jerry cans and um, gave the then occupant, you know, a 30-minute opportunity to show cause why they shouldn't burn it down, uh, which they listened to, apparently. Uh, and, uh, uh, and when they were just about to reject it, the story goes that a, a gentleman called Art O'Connor uh, appeared on the scene and um, said, no, call this one off. Uh, the occupants of this house are, are not of British descent and uh, we, we shouldn't be burning this one down. How wonderful. Uh, Art O'Connor went on to become, a, I think he was a minister in the uh, Irish government and later a judge. I think he's an interesting uh, gentleman. So it avoided a, a fate that, uh, you know, would have meant it would just be a series of pictures in a, in a mm. book today rather than a... <laughs> A uh, house. How wonderful. Um, and now I'm noticing that we've passed a lot of time away yeah, already, nice. so we must get on to the sporting connection. What's oh. the sport that we have a connection with? Oh, well, there's, a, there's, a, there's an in, indirect connection with cricket, uh, and that has come about in a... It's not too much of a long bow. It's a very real thing. Uh, I mean, early cricket in Ireland has often been, um, you know, neglected as a topic and so on, but, um, and seen as a garrison game. But uh, I referred earlier to um, Thomas Conley and his wife, Lady, Lu Lady Louisa Lennox, uh, who was the daughter of the Duke of Richmond. And her father, uh, whose own stately home is at Goodwood in uh, Hampshire, uh, is well acknowledged as the... Uh, uh, and saw himself as the father of cricket. And... Uh, he, he was a very keen cricket uh, player and promoter. And in, I think it's 1727, he played a, a match against one of the um, 
the son of one of the Irish aristocrats, um, Viscount Middleton, uh, whose family names are Broderick, and it's that match that um, saw the recording of the rules of the game, and it's the first or earliest surviving uh, uh, copy of the rules of a match of uh, cricket. Uh, although obviously cricket has a much earlier history, but it's from that match that um, you know, they set out how many players would be on each side and how the game would be played and so on. And I must throw in here, cricket, even at that very early stage, was a big gambling game. <laughs> and it was also very popular. You know, like they'd get huge crowds to, to come to attend these. And, and um, so Broderick, that I mentioned, was the son of a very close... Uh, associate of Speaker William Connolly, as it turns out. And uh, so it's just a... We tie in there with a very early connection then with the uh, uh, the link between... You know, and I suppose it should be fairly straight, obvious in a way, you know, between, uh, you know, uh, the uh, British and the uh, Irish, particularly at a sort of, a, you know, the higher levels of society, so to speak. Yes, indeed. And because um, mm. we don't often think about... Ireland when we think about the history of cricket, do we? No, not at all. <laughs> yeah, so that's quite, quite amazing. And mm. do we think that cricket was ever played at, at the house? Well, I'm sure it was, but I, I, I can't offer you any like, precise documentary evidence <laughs> to that, other than to say that um, Thomas Conley that I mentioned was... Um, he was an asthmatic. This rings through to, to present day, I think. He was asthmatic, but he was known as a... a um, a fanatical sportsman. He he used to ride every day, run every day, exercise every day. Uh, so it wouldn't surprise me in the least bit that he also uh, was involved in the odd game of cricket at Castletown House. He but, sounds like a cricketer. But I don't know it for sure, though. <laughs> <laughs> How wonderful. So the threads of history kind of um, interconnect all over the place, don't they? Um, so... Uh, we're almost out of time, but if you'd like to hear more about um, this fascinating period in Anglo-Irish history in the um, first half of the 18th century, and of course up to the present, because um, the house is still there, um, Jeff's going to be giving a talk at the Croft on Tuesday afternoon at four o'clock. Um, so very welcome to come up and uh, have a listen and find out a little bit more about um, this house. And I believe there'll be pictures too. Oh yes, I'll have a PowerPoint presentation and... Um Fantastic, yeah, so, so you'll actually be able to see the house. You'll be able to see the house, and exactly right, which is uh, the one drawback of radio, of course. Yes, yeah, we could paint you a, a word <laughs> picture, but it would take too long. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> um, but we're talking about one of the, the stately homes, one of the earliest stately homes built in the 18th century in Ireland, um, a absolutely beautiful building, as you'll see if you're able to come to the Croft on Tuesday <laughs> afternoon. Um, and and it's, it's entanglement in history. So it's got links through to the Jacobite episodes. It's got links through to the founding of the modern game of cricket. It's got links to politics and uh, all of the, the big ticket items in, in Irish history. And architectural history is, is a fascinating field for that very reason, that um, not only do you have a house and its and its fabric and all of the interesting aspects of that, but also all the people who are associated with it. Um, so, Jeff, thank you very much for joining us this morning. Uh, we 
probably do need to cut it off now. We've got a few messages from our sponsors and a couple more songs to play. Um, but uh, thank you for talking to us. And I think we may be placing this interview onto the website so people could listen back or send it on to their friends if they're interested. But uh, the other way to find out more, of course, is to pop up to The Croft on Tuesday. So, Jeff, thank you very much for being with us this morning. Thank you, Pam. It's been a pleasure.